Well, good morning, everybody. Um, our scripture for today comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. And for the, for the past few Sundays, we've been looking at the book of Philippians. And given where we are in the world today, I'm not sure that there's actually a better place in scripture to turn as we try and stay grounded in what Jesus has taught and what he's done for us. Unlike some of Paul's other letters, this one is addressed to a church that is established and is after God's own heart. And this isn't a letter of condemnation, rather one of encouragement and commendation and a message of warning as well as they try and navigate the world that they're in. And much like today, there were people threatening the truth and the church needed encouragement and teaching in order to respond correctly to the outside noise and to continue to strengthen their faith. You see, Paul understands as well as anyone that there will be suffering and there will be tribulation here on earth. And he went through plenty of that himself. He had to overcome his past life of persecuting Christians. He has been thrown into prison and beaten numerous times for sharing the gospel. And he talks about a thorn that bothers him throughout his life, even though we never truly understand what that really means. And so even though Paul is one of the pillars of New Testament faith, his life is certainly not free of difficulties. And some of those difficulties are being addressed here in the passage as well as some of the positive things about Paul. And again, that passage is Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 14, reading in the name of the, word, of the Lord. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, without you, we are nothing. We know that to be true. We read it in your word, and yet often we struggle with the pride of our own actions and struggle with the things of this world. May you give us your wisdom this morning as we read these words and learn how to truly put our pride in your grace and your mercy. Amen. You may be seated. So as with much 
of the New Testament, we begin by looking at kind of this Jew-Gentile relationship. But this time, instead of addressing the Gentiles, Paul is taking another step. We read in verse 4 and 5, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, this sounds like a really, um, like a haughty or self-righteous statement. But it isn't, and here's why. So typically, when the flesh is mentioned in a biblical context, we're talking about our human bodies or our minds. So in that sense, what Paul is saying here really sounds like he's bragging about how great he is personally. However, if we dig into the original language in which the text is written, we find a different interpretation. You see, Paul isn't referring to his body or his mind. Instead, he's referring to his heritage. And he explains that idea in the following verses. Remember, it wasn't long before this that Jews were under the belief that they were the only ones to inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, these beliefs even persevered through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And it caused a lot of, of strife and, and chaos in the early church. And this strife and this chaos is likely what Paul's addressing in this section of his letter. Furthermore, if you read the Old Testament, only certain tribes of Israel actually stayed true to God's commands. That would be the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul himself hails from the tribe of Benjamin with parents who are both 100% Jewish. His lineage is beyond reproach. He was even named after the first king of Israel. Paul goes on to explain that he has been brought up under every Jewish tradition. He was circumcised when he was eight days old, as was customary. He even followed Jewish laws to a T, laws that, through his death on the cross, Jesus has since abolished. So Paul is speaking from a place of authority when it comes to being a part of God's original chosen people. You can't get more Jewish than Paul. But is Paul using his past to affirm himself as one of God's chosen people? Is Paul separating himself from those who don't have perfect lineage? He's not. In fact, he's using the example of himself to explain the gospel. And he explains that starting in verse 7 and 8. He says, but whatever gain I had, whatever advantage my, my lineage or my practice has given me, had given me, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order, order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Thanks be to God that everyone, not just descendants of Israel, can have faith. In these few verses, we see Paul point out the folly in his former ways. Paul has realized that he is invested in a totally worthless stock. Now this particular stock that he invested in, it didn't used to be useless, uh, but because of Jesus it is now. Paul investing in his Jewishness for salvation no longer made any sense. For those of you who invest or know anything about stocks, how likely are you to go out from here after the service and try and buy a stock in Sears? 
or Macy's or, or one of those brick and mortar big box stores. Of course you wouldn't, right? Sears, it would probably be really tough to buy a stock now. But they used to have value, but they no longer hold any water because something better came along. In the case of this example, Amazon and other online businesses. Obviously, the stakes are much higher when we're talking about salvation. Uh, but this is essentially why Paul can no longer feel comfortable in his faith simply because of his heritage. Something better, Jesus, had come along and now salvation was for everyone. Heritage no longer holds water in terms of salvation. And since heritage isn't the key, what does Paul say the key to salvation is? Of course, it's, it's faith in Christ, continuing where we left off in verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness depends on faith alone. No heritage, no works. This isn't a groundbreaking development, probably, for most of us. We are saved by faith through his grace. We all know the verse, but, but Paul isn't finished yet. And maybe this is where it might start to get a little bit uncomfortable. Reading from verses 10 through 11. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying here? Everything seemed really simple up until now. What is this about suffering? Is Paul really yearning to share in the suffering of Christ? Yes, he is. In the introduction, we covered the suffering Paul faced as the result of his esteemed position as an apostle. And the truth is, Paul figured his death would eventually come as a result of his faith. And this isn't the first time he mentions it either. Death has always been near at hand during Paul's ministry. He's narrowly escaped numerous times, or more appropriately, God spared him numerous times. But Paul knew death would eventually come. And yet he was grateful to share in Christ's sufferings. Now, I can't tell any of you what your future holds. I don't know my own future. However, I would be willing to guess that most of us probably won't face the suffering and death Paul did as a result of our faith. But that doesn't mean that our lives won't be uncomfortable. Proclaiming your faith in today's context brings about many assumptions from others. There are many places in our immediate context uh, where standing on a soapbox and proclaiming the gospel would potentially bring a great deal of backlash, both political and otherwise. And talking to others about our faith in Christ is almost never the most comfortable thing to do. Neither is suffering. But Paul encourages us to press on regardless of that suffering that might come our way. And now we come to verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. These three verses are, are really a sermon within themselves. This is Paul. This is the great Apostle Paul. And what does he say? Does he say that he has achieved anything? Does he say that he's accomplished his potential that God has given him? No, he's, he says the opposite. His journey, his calling, isn't finished. His learning isn't complete. And nor is ours. In today's world, once someone has achieved a high level of success or, or notoriety in the business world, or you know, if they've gotten rich, typically what do you see that person do? I would say a lot of times they, they slow down, especially as they get up there in years. Maybe they, they aren't in the office as much as they once were. Or they might skip some meetings that they don't deem as important. They'll have somebody else sit in for them. Maybe their golf game improves dramatically. Once you've achieved greatness, why should you continue to press? But Paul warns us of exactly that. He warns us not to slow down. Instead, we must press on. Disregarding or discarding our lineage and our history, as rich or successful as it might be, because Christ is at work today, just as he was yesterday, and therefore, we should be too. Paul says in verse 12 that he himself has not already obtained or become perfect, but he presses on. He continues to grow in faith, in relationship with Jesus Christ, and he continues to learn. You see, following the Lord is a, is a constant growing process. We will never reach a point of completion until that day comes that God calls us home to be with him. For one of my seminary courses recently, I had the opportunity to take um, an online inventory test that essentially graded how I felt about myself, it graded my, my strengths and my weaknesses, my emotional maturity. And let me tell you, if I thought that these scores that I got reflected the best version of myself that I was going to get, I would be gravely disappointed. It was honestly pretty discouraging at times because, man, do I have a lot I need to work on. But I'm thankful for passages like this because they encourage me to believe that I am called to continue to learn and to grow. This isn't my final form in Christ. One of the areas in which I feel I need growth is the area of teachability. More specifically, seeking to learn and grow and avoid complacency. And I'm probably not alone in that. Often it's easy for us to get complacent with where we are. Maybe you're good enough at your job to continue to bring home a paycheck and not worry, to worry about getting fired. Maybe you make an all right husband or wife, or father or mother or student or whatever you've got going on. Um, there's an illustration of a man who worked with a company for, for 15 years and he'd been loyal to this company, showing up every day on time for work with his lunch pail. And he'd done his job well enough and was overall valuable to his employer. So when a position in management opens up, he throws his hat into the ring, figuring that this, 
Fifteen years he spent with this company all but guarantees him this promotion. But when the promotion announcement comes, he isn't chosen. Instead, his co-worker, who started working only seven years ago, gets a pay raise and an opportunity to sit in the corner office. The 15-year company man is upset, and he goes to the manager to voice his, his concern. I've been here for 15 years, and he's only been here seven. I have 15 years of experience. This guy only has seven. And the manager responds, yeah, well, you're right. He does only have seven years of experience. But you, sir, have one year's experience 15 times. Think about that for a second, right? Do you have that mindset? Do we continue to strive for growth? Do we allow ourselves to be teachable? Or are we comfortable with where we are? Who we are, or what we've already done? This teachability is what Paul is getting at here in this passage. Despite being universally recognized as perhaps the most influential apostle of not only his time, but maybe all time, Paul knows that he must continue to press on. He must continue to learn, and he encourages us to do the same. As human beings, our bodies and our minds are extremely adept at doing the bare minimum to survive. The human race has spent billions and billions of dollars and hours in order to make things easier for us. We've invented things like a, like a log splitter to, make, to save us from physical toil, uh, the calculator to save our minds from having to think, grocery stores so we don't have to hunt or gather, followed by online shopping so we don't even have to go to the grocery store. And there are countless other examples, as you guys know. But Paul isn't calling us merely to survive. Paul isn't calling us to stick with the status quo. Paul is calling us to press on in the name of Christ Jesus. Any Seahawks fans out there? One, at least. A couple? All right, good. Um, last week, the Seahawks squeaked out a win against the Dallas Cowboys, um, which was great. But there's one player for the Seahawks I want to mention individually, and his name is DK Metcalf. Now, if you happen to watch the game, you probably know exactly what I'm about to reference here. But DK Metcalf is a second-year receiver for the Hawks, and he's already being compared to some of the all-time great wide receivers to ever play football. He's big, he's fast, he's physical, he's got all the attributes you look for in a successful football player. Last week in the first half, Russell Wilson dropped back to pass, and he threw a beautiful deep ball to DK, who was simply stronger and faster than the guy trying to guard him. Metcalf caught the ball at about the 10-yard line, and there was nobody between him and the end zone. But inexplicably, DK didn't score a touchdown. Instead, after catching the ball, he slowed down and he held the ball in one hand, and the defender caught up and swatted the ball out of his hand at the one-yard line, and Dallas ended up with the ball. It was a boneheaded, inexcusable mistake, and it could have cost the Seahawks the game. DK was visibly upset with himself as he walked off the field. His teammates tried to cheer him up, but it was obvious that he was distraught over his error. 
Despite being incredibly talented and all that, DK wasn't perfect. DK had made a fatal mistake of not finishing the play. He thought he was good. He thought he was in the clear. And he slowed down at the end. He was running to the finish line rather than running through the finish line. You see the difference there. DK still has growth opportunities. DK still has things to learn. Through high school, I was a track and cross country runner. And I know some of you have either ran in or watched cross country meets before. And trust me, I know as well as you do that it isn't the greatest spectator sport out there. But if you've watched a cross country meet, you know that the most exciting part of the race to watch is the finish. Because after running over three miles, the athletes are giving everything they have to be in the best position or the best time possible as they cross that finish line. When I was racing, the finish was my absolute favorite part of the race, and it was for two reasons. First, I felt that I was a stronger finisher than most people I was running against. I felt that I was faster in 100 meters than most people I was, I was racing. And second, there was the added motivation that that is when I could stop running. I knew as soon as I crossed that line, I didn't have to run anymore, and that was great news. And some of my greatest memories from those days were when I would round the final turn, finish line in sight, and up in front of me would be another guy who hadn't picked up his pace. The interesting thing about it, if you've actually raced before, is that because of the crowd and, and uh, the sound of your feet and the sound of your breathing and the overall exhaustion uh, in general, because of all of those factors, unless you turn around and look, which really is a cardinal sin when running because you can trip and it usually slows you down, Unless you turn around and look, you often don't know what's going on behind you. You have no idea. And this is how I would stalk my prey. In the last 50 meters or so, I would take just a second to mentally prepare myself for exhaustion. And then I would pour every last drop of energy I had into making my feet move faster. And there were quite a few occasions where, as the fellow in front of me approached the line, he would begin to slow. He would think he was in the clear. And at that last possible instant, I would shoot past him. I'd kind of hook him with my arm and my shoulder right as we got to the line. And I would gain that spot in the last meter of a 5,000 meter race. And I loved doing that to people. I don't know if that's sick or not, but I loved it. And that's why you run hard all the way through the line, not just up to it. However, as easy as it is to compare life to a race, and the Bible does it plenty, there is one stark difference. When I was racing, I would run the course beforehand so that I could plan my approach. And I'd, I'd analyze it. I'd look and see where the uphills or the downhills were. I, I knew where the, the trail got narrow and I was going to have trouble passing people. Um, and most importantly, I knew exactly how far I had to run and precisely where the finish line was. In life, we don't have any of those advantages. We don't know when we will face difficulties or adversity. We can't prepare for a sickness that blindsides a family or a car accident 
or a child who won't listen, or a pandemic. And we don't know how long we're here or where the finish line is. We started off this morning looking at Paul's heritage and how, in the Old Testament, that would have put him at the front of the line going to heaven. But what about Paul's works? What had Paul done on earth? Well, we talked about some of the good stuff, but he'd spent a considerable amount of time persecuting Christians. As a member of the Pharisees, Paul had devoted his life to righteousness under the law, this mindset. He claims to have followed the traditional Jewish law perfectly and persecuted Christians for not doing such. Yet in Matthew 23, 23, Christ announces these laws. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. Before his encounter with God on the road to Damascus, Paul had messed this up completely. He was so proud and self-righteous as a result of his lawfulness and his heritage that he misunderstood the gospel. He didn't understand the gospel at all. Paul would probably have been tempted to dwell on these tremendous failures that he had early in his life. And yet, here Paul is now, possibly the most influential apostle in the world. He has traveled to many churches, planted other churches, and is considered the foremost expert on the Christian faith by everyone he's visited. Paul's cleaned up pretty well. How? Second half of verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There's a story about Clara Barton that I heard once. Uh, Clara Barton was the founder of the, of the Red Cross, and one day she was talking with a friend. And the conversation led to a person that they, they both knew and had had interactions with previously. And years before, this person had done and said some very cruel things to Clara. And her friend asked her, Don't you remember what they said and did to you? No, she replied. I distinctly remember forgetting that. Pretty cool, right? And the reality is that sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. Because we are imperfect, we are going to mess things up along the way. It's the unfortunate reality of our nature. Um, when I was in Chad, and Sarah was actually here for this story, which is it's cool that you're here. Um, we were visiting all of these wells that the LB had, had installed, and, and we were visiting all of these groups of people who had never heard the gospel before. And I've told this story a few times, but um, after our first day of visiting, uh, or at our evening recap with Dan Venberg, he encouraged us that if we felt like we wanted to share something, there would be an opportunity at these visits to these wells. And so I thought, well, you know, I mean, I'm a youth pastor. I've shared the gospel before with, with kids. I mean, I think I can put something together. And it was on my heart to do that. And so that night I stayed up and I, I wrote out just like a seven to ten minute message around Psalm 23 that I intended to share. And the next day we were out, and sure enough, we're, we're in this little village sitting on this mat, and 
Dan asks, just like he said he would, do any of you guys have anything to share? And I stayed quiet, and we moved on. And that's an opportunity that I'm never going to get back. But can I allow that failed opportunity to shape my ministry moving forward? Can I let myself dwell on that mistake as I continue to try and strive for Christ? No, I have to move on. I have to move past it and keep my eyes forward. I have to continue pressing on just as Paul says. And that's certainly what Paul needed to do after his conversion on the road to Damascus. He'd spent his early life persecuting the people he later devoted his life to teaching and encouraging. He could never have done that if he'd been dwelling on his past. The Seahawks won last Sunday's game against the Cowboys, and guess who made the game-winning touchdown? That's right, it was DK Metcalf. Rather than dwelling on his terrible mistake in the first half, he shook it off and scored the fourth-quarter touchdown that won his team the game. He kept his eyes on the future, he kept playing, he kept pressing, and he overcame his past mistake to help the team win. May God give us the grace to take the focus off of ourselves and our past triumphs or our past defeats and instead live our lives as a response to our faith in Christ, learning and growing in that faith, not to the finish line, but through the finish line. Pressing on all the way to when Jesus calls us home to be in paradise with him. Amen.